Our reading this morning is from Mark 1, verses 40 through 45. This is what Holy Scripture says. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If we've not met, my name is Alex uh, Watlington, and I uh, lead a chapter of RUF at USC. And in fact, uh, after I leave here uh, this morning, I'm going to go to that campus to begin our ministry this semester. And uh, as our ministry starts, we are going to a bunch of new students and and returning students and trying to cast a vision and an idea of who we are and what we're there to do. And what, what, in my vision, what we're there to do is to reach a bunch of people who would never even come to this, would never even think that at the end of 2019 that in the spring of the semester, that they would be involved with something that's about Jesus. That's what we want our ministry to be about. What do you want this church to be about? What, what, let me ask you what you are about. As I've been thinking about this, uh, I was, it came to mind when I was rewatching this summer um, some episodes of Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain after he passed away. That was, uh, um, came to my mind. And my favorite episode that I watched was... Uh, one where he went to see this guy, Sean Brock, from Charleston, South Carolina. And he goes to see uh, Sean Brock and goes to his restaurant, gets an amazing meal. They're talking about high cuisine. And in the middle of their conversation, uh, Sean Brock says, well, you know, I got this from uh, Waffle House. And Anthony Bourdain, if you don't know, he's this man who just travels all over the world. The most finest of restaurants, the finest of foods, uh, just says, uh, what's Waffle House? Uh, now, if you don't know what Waffle House is, just imagine a gas station bathroom that sells waffles. That's Waffle House. And so he says, I have no idea what this is. And Sean Brock's like, we have to go right now. So they leave this incredibly nice restaurant, and they go to a Waffle House. And they're in there, and they go, and they look at the menu, and you know, it has pictures on the menu, in case you don't know what a waffle is. <laughs> or eggs are, and so they order everything on the menu. I mean, they order a waffle, and then they order the hash browns with everything on them. They even order, like, that salad that has come out straight out of a bag with, like, the packet of Thousand Island dressing, and at one point, he even looks at him and says, uh, hey, do you want uh, the thinly cut pork chops or the teen bone steak? And Anthony Bourdain just goes, both. And so they just eat everything on the menu. And the most amazing part of this episode is this guy who's gone to the finest of foods, tasted the best stuff in Italy, in Paris, in New York, in every part of the world that's amazing. He says, 
This is amazing. And he loves Waffle House. And this is what he says about it. He says, it is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. Its warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered, all across the South to come inside. It is a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, and it is always there for you. Don't you want to be a part of a place like that? (laughs) Your neighbors all across this city want to be a part of a place like that. I want to be a part of a place like that. And don't you want this church to be a part of a place like that? That everyone in your neighborhood, whether they could call Jesus Lord or not, thinks that King's Church in Long Beach is like that. And do you know how you become a place like that? You center everything on the life and ministry of Jesus. And in this text this morning, this, this is such a profound insight into what Jesus' ministry is going to be like. Because what it is, is it invites somebody who is seriously broken, who needs a place that is always inviting, always faithful, and always open. And so let's see that this morning through Jesus' ministry through four things. One, there's a condition we all fear. Two, there's a request no one wants to make. Three, there's a kindness everybody needs. And fourth, there's a power nobody has. These four things in the text. First, there's a condition we all have. If you look back at the beginning in verse 40, it tells us that this man had leprosy. And, and that can be a vague uh, description of a variety of skin diseases, but uh, the Swiss scientist uh, Hendrik van der Loos observed that, uh, th- that one thing that we can know about leprosy is that it was so life-threatening that it thought to be as uncurable as death itself, and that it left you with a debilitating life where your, life, your, your body just began to break down more and more and more. And what happens on the inside begins on the outside. So that it's not just internally your body's falling apart. Externally, everybody can see it. And so it was physically tormenting. But it wasn't just physically tormenting. It was emotionally intolerable. Because what would happen to you if you had leprosy is that everybody in your life had to cut you off. Because once you had this disease, you were declared unclean. And that didn't just mean you were declared sinful or you were declared wrong. It meant you had to be cast out of the community. That nobody in the the community of faith, nobody in your family could have anything to do with you. You had to wear clothes that told people that you had this disease. If they walked on this side of the road, you had to walk on another side of the road. And if you wanted to come to the synagogue, you could only come, but you had to sit in the far corner with a curtain draped around you so that everybody knew who it was. I mean, it was a clear isolation lifestyle. It was lonely, it was painful, and it was relationally empty. And here's what's so um, hard that we need to face right now. Nobody was wrong for treating people this way. We read this text and think, how could all these people treat this poor downtrodden man this way? But you need to understand, the law declared that they were to treat everybody this way. 
And even more, they had a practical lifestyle understanding of this because it was a life-threatening disease. I mean, if you, if you touched somebody, you could get it and now have this life-threatening, non-curable disease. And so everybody who treated people this way, it was never considered stuck up. It was never considered self-righteous. It was never considered something like the rich aristocracy did. Nobody in society related to these people. And it's so easy for us today sort of to think, well, we would never treat anybody that way. But I'll tell you somebody who we did sort of treat this way. Uh, her name was Justine Sacco. About uh, six years ago, she, Justine was a woman who was working in New York City. She worked for uh, IEC and communications and living this very successful uh, professional lifestyle on the Upper East Side of New York City. And in December, uh, right before Christmas, she was going to take a personal trip to Cape Town, South Africa. And so boarding the plane, she's checking her phone and doing some last-minute stuff. And she got on her Twitter account. And to her measly 170 followers, she tweeted something uh, very foolish. Uh, later, she said it was a joke, but it was pretty app appallingly awful. She wrote on her Twitter account, Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Yeah, unthinkably racist and appalling thing to say. But she only has 170 followers. She goes to sleep on the plane. It's a 16-hour flight. When she wakes up, she turns her phone on. Ding, 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 exploding. Her Twitter account and her tweet is now the number one trending tweet in the world. Everyone around the world has seen this. It's gone viral upon viral upon viral. And the reactions are more intense than maybe even her own tweet. People saying, How, who is this woman? How did she ever get a PR job? Her ignorance is the most racist I've ever heard. One of her fellow employees, I'm an IAC employee, and I don't want her doing any communications on our behalf ever again. The anger then turned into entertainment as a few days before Christmas, where people wrote things like, all I want for Christmas is to see Justine Sacco's face when the plane lands and she checks her inbox and, invo and voicemail. It got so big that somebody was waiting there with cameras and they filmed her coming off the plane checking her phone, trying to interview her there. Naturally, she's in tears, terrified. She eventually lost her job. Her family then said to her, this is not what our family stands for and by now, with association, you've almost tarnished the family. So she was then uninvited to all of the Christmas holidays. Now here's the point. When she tweeted something like that, would you want to be the one that messaged her, I forgive you, or it's okay, or I'll still be your friend? Wouldn't you feel like if you did something like that, you'd be condoning the horrible racist tweet? Wouldn't you feel like that would cost you all of your relationships? Wouldn't you feel like that would just be a violation of all sort of so social and civil rights altogether? What is it for you that if it came out, what bitterness or what anger, or what about your personality if it came out and people learned it, you'd be afraid that you'd go viral and no one, no one would, would, would want to be in a relationship with you. Your family would even uninvite you to Christmas and want nothing to do with you.
And this community in this church would even say, you're no longer welcome. And people would say, it's not worth the risk. We're not even allowed to have a relationship with you. What is it that you'd be so afraid you'd come out? Because all of us have some sort of condition that we're so afraid could ever come out. And if it ever comes out to anybody else, we're terrified to ever connect with them and have a relationship with us. That's the first. That's the condition that we all fear. But secondly, there's a request that none of us seem to make. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, in his book, The Sickness Unto Death, he argues that um, fear is this really paralyzing, dominating thing in our life that will make us run from God and run from the church. And he says what's so dominating and polluting about fear is it doesn't just make us run from the church, but that if we ever have a moment of sobriety, it will then make us afraid to ever run back to God and run back to the church. And so it, pers- it leads us into isolation, but then makes us stay in isolation. And often, if you ever get in a condition, you ever get in a place where you've done something to make you cast out, there's no part of you that ever thinks, I can go back to the people I've wronged, or I can go back to that community and they will accept me. And often, we don't ever even think about doing that because we don't get desperate enough to make a request like that. But the unique advantage that this man has over us is that there's no part of his condition that he can fake. Now, I know some of you right now have something that is within you, in your life, in your closet, that if people found out, you'd be terrified. But you've done a really good job at managing your life so that you never have to make a desperate request for help. And there's sort of a jail about that where it's more imprisoning for it not to be let out. And this man actually has a little bit of a freedom because there's no hiding. He wasn't legally allowed to hide it in any way. And so he goes to Jesus. It says two things. It says he, got, he implored with him. Uh, one translation, it says he beseeched him. Uh, maybe the best way to translate it, though, is he's begging Jesus. And then he's begging him by getting down on his knees as a sign of desperation, sort of saying, you are my only hope. And he looks at him in his desperate, unlovable, non-relational condition, saying, help me. And see, if you want to come to Jesus, and you want people in this community to come to Jesus like it's a Waffle House, you have to understand that they can't come, and you can't come the way we typically come to people. See, here's how we typically ask for help in 2018. We begin to describe something overwhelming that's going on in our life or that's about to happen. And we say, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do this next week. Um, I've got to do this on Tuesday, and the kids have to be there at the same time. I've got to work. Uh, My husband's going out of town. This is going to happen. And we describe, like, these insurmountable circumstances. And the moment... Uh, we begin to, to describe this. So the person we're talking to has a reaction of like overwhelming too. And we sense that in them as well. And the moment they begin to ask for help, we go, oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> I'll figure it out myself. It will be okay. I'll manage. Because asking for help in that situation is almost worse than being overwhelmed yourself. And being vulnerable to the point where you say, I cannot do my life, what's going on right now, feels more vulnerable, more fearful than even the overwhelming circumstances you have to face in yourself.
And it's very rare in 2018 where we ever get to the point, whether it's through a sickness or through uh, insurmountable circumstances or a difficult relationship or marriage or something like that, that we ever get to the point where we turn to a community and say, I just need help. Help me. And that's very reflective of the way that we want to come to Jesus. Because all of us, both in this room and outside this room, want to come to Jesus saying, I do need forgiveness and probably help with this thing in my life. But it's not like that person, or it's not like those people. Because fearfully coming on our knees, beseeching and begging in vulnerability, makes us look to a place that we've never maybe even looked in our hearts and souls. And we definitely won't let anybody else look that deep into our heart and soul. But if we never get that far, listen, it only leaves us in jail. Those requests are even themselves, the ones that were without begging, are paralyzing. Because the joy in life, like Jean-Paul Sartre said, it never starts until the other side of despair. Uh, Melissa Flowers, a woman who did a lot of research on AA, uh, and found this one story where she said a woman came away really angry and mad from AA. And the reason she became, uh, came away mad and angry is she said after 30 days, uh, nothing seemed to be working with her addiction and with her help. And uh, what made her mad is she met a woman in AA who told her, you need to leave AA and uh, you need to go hit rock bottom and you need to go pursue this addiction further because none of this, none of this community and none of this therapy will mean anything to you until you get desperate enough for it. Do you want to know why Christianity and Jesus have been so stale to you this summer or in 2018? Or why it means practically nothing to any of your friends or anyone else in Long Beach? It's because you're not desperate enough. It's because you need advice. Because you need a, a little boost, a little shot of spiritual energy and you're not honest with yourself about the potential of being completely isolated and treated like a leper. Or you're not willing enough to go after those who are themselves Justine Sackos, who have been living in that isolation. See, there's a request that's more difficult than probably the disease itself, and that's just to ask for help and to look for help. And thirdly, though, here's the only thing that can make you do that request, is if you understand a kindness that we all need. See, guilt and shame will never lead you to be desperate. It will never lead you on your knees. It will never lead you to come to a church and to come to Jesus and make a powerful request. It will only leave you in more isolation and, like Kierkegaard says, in more fear and in pain. But the only thing that will ever lead you back is an insurmountable kindness. And Jesus' kindness in this text is just unlike anything that we ever taste in this world. Because here's a man who has been commanded by law and society, you may not have any interaction, any relationships with anyone else, and he comes on his knees, begging, saying, will you help me? 
And Jesus, it says in verse 41, it says, in this desperate moment, looked on him. And before he says anything, before he fixes him, before he ministers a word of grace to him, it just says he had compassion on him. Now, I love this. Because every time somebody comes to you for help, what's the urge that you have in you? When somebody talks about the difficult circumstances in their life, we immediately feel like, I've got to say something to make this better, right? I've got to offer some wisdom here. I've got to say something that will calm their words, calm their hearts. But what Jesus does is somebody begging on their knees. He just looks at him and he he acknowledges the fear. And then he validates the fear, the fear. And then he emotionally enters into the pain. And he moves towards this man. And it just says he gave him compassion. See, before Jesus says anything and he does anything, he just offers him connection and emotional comfort. And what a word for us today. When people who we disagree with, People who say things that we think, you deserve your isolation. You deserve your lack of relationships. You deserve to be cast out of this family, of this marriage, of this church, of this society. How rare do we just try to sit with them in the circumstances that led them to such a painful statement or such a painful action. But see, where Jesus begins with this man is just to feel with him. And just to enter into him. When it says Jesus had pity on him, literally the Greek it says it was viscerally moved. And one of the reasons that we can't enter into people like this is that we have a very hard time getting outside of ourselves and looking beyond our own circumstances and how this person might affect us. My friend uh, in Newport Beach, who's a pastor, Chad Brewer, he was telling me about this time. Uh, he was um, having a, a party with his students. And uh, they were outside their condo in the backyard hanging out. And then everybody went inside uh, as Chad went around to the front of his car to get something. And he came back and nobody's there. And he said he walked, uh, he was sort of standing in the backyard and uh, all his students were in the kitchen and uh, they were all standing there and looking out. And Chad's just standing there in the backyard, just kind of looking like this. And he, he, he's, it's pretty self-deprecating to hear Chad tell this story. Because he said he, he just sort of was like standing there with like sort of a pose. Kind of looking at the thing. And, and everybody's going, what is he doing? <laughs> like, is, is he like striking a model pose for us? What's going on? And Chad was just sort of looking at it. And, and they don't understand what's going on. Like, why is he looking at us just like this? And what was going on is Chad couldn't see anybody in the kitchen. Because in the reflection, he was just staring at himself. See, one of the things that's so hard about moving towards people in pain and moving towards people who can affect us is we can't get past our own reflection. And we can't get past the idea of how this will cost us time. How will this will affect us socially? How this will affect us personally? But Jesus is so different and his kindness is unlike anything else because he risks 
everything personally here and moves immediately towards a person that no one is even allowed to do. And he just feels with and enters into this man. And I'll tell you one of the things that will help you begin to do this is if you will watch more movies and read more stories. Because what movies do and what stories do is they get you out of your shoes into someone else's shoes and into someone else's life. Roger Ebert, in his uh, acceptance speech on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, he said this about movies. Movies are a most powerful empathy machine in all of the arts. When I go to a great movie, I can live in somebody else's life for a while. I can walk in somebody else's shoes. I can see what it feels like to be a member of a different gender, a different race, a different, a different economic class, and to live in a different time and to have a different belief. See, and because Jesus does this, and because he can enter into somebody else's life, he doesn't just say, I'm sorry that's happening to you. Hope it gets better. He says, I'm glad that you told me that. And I'm here to enter in. You know, and, and there's this part at the end that we're not going to deal a whole lot with where Jesus says, don't go tell anybody what happened to you. But go and show yourself to the priest. Now, in a real short statement, here's what's going on. Jesus realizes what's going to happen after this man leaves. There's going to be a controversy with the priests because they're not going to acknowledge him as a priest. And so they're going to say this was demonic. And so what Jesus is going to do is he says, go be a testimony before the priesthood because what he's going to end up doing is redefining and undoing the priesthood. See, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's not just being a priest to this person and entering into his pain and hearing his pain. He's setting himself up to be a priest of all priests who will then hear everybody's pain and hear everybody's problems and hear everybody's sins. But he's not just a priest who you go to and you say, this is what's going on. This is what I'm afraid of. This is what I don't know what to do about. He won't just look at you and say, go do this. He will say, I have already done something about it. So that the book of Hebrews can say this about him. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in every time of need. Do you understand that there's nothing personally and emotionally you can ever go through that you can ever take to Jesus as priest and he won't first have compassion on you and understand you because he himself has been through and gone through that? I mean, have you ever felt like in a time of need, in a time of crisis, nobody has shown up the way that you needed to show up? The night before he was going to be betrayed, the disciples 
the one who would follow him around, they just fell asleep on him. I mean, have you ever felt like nobody understood me? Nobody in my community got me. All he did, his whole ministry, is say, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. He dies, and three days later, and nobody asks any questions. Do you think this is going to happen? I mean, have you ever felt, like, mentally tortured? Like something is, there's like a voice that, like, won't stop chasing you around and, like, telling you lies for 40 days in the desert. For 40 days in the desert, the devil just sat there and tempted him this way and teased him this way and challenged him this way over and over and over and over and over again. Have you, ever, have you ever cried like so much that your face like stung and, and, and there's nobody who could comfort you. There's nobody who could help you. And it, it says he, he wailed so loud that he dove into the ground and then he began to sweat bl- drops of blood over the stress and fear over the rejection of God. I mean, have you ever felt so lonely that nobody, like nobody will be here with, for you in this life. Nobody will be around. I mean, on the cross, the eternal Father, who he'd, have, he'd had eternal communion with, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, nobody in this world will ever be able to understand every emotional, difficult isolating situation you have ever been through, like Jesus. Whatever you have gone through, whatever you have tasted, whatever you have personally experienced, he has tasted. And John Owen says about the priesthood of Jesus, he hasn't just felt what you know. He understands what you know. He has compassion on what you know. And he can do something about what you know. No one has this kindness. But fourthly and lastly, it's not just a kindness. There's a power that no one else has. See, in this text, there's a condition we're all afraid of. There's a request that no one seems that they can make. But Jesus goes towards that with a kindness that everybody needs, that we ourselves need to embody and follow. But only lastly, there's a power that no one else has. See, the awkwardness of trying to empathize and care for people who have been cast out is once we enter into them and even try to offer kindness and empathy, it feels pretty awkward when we can't fix the situation. But, you know, Buddhist uh, scholar Joan Halifax, she argues, she says, when you go to people to have empathy and compassion, actually, You ought to suspend the idea that the situation can ever be helped. She says this. She says, the essential component of compassion is that we cannot be attached to the outcome. Any attached to the outcome would distort my ability to be attached to present situations. So what she says from a Buddhist point of view is that when people are hurting and lonely and in isolating circumstances, don't even think it can be fixed. Don't even hope for it. Just go be with them. And in, and in one way, she has a great point because what that will do is cause you to be incredibly present with this person 
and to do what Jesus does at the beginning, just to have pity on them and just to have compassion and to sit with them. But listen, compassion and kindness without help is in the end hell. Because looking at somebody and being with them and caring for them but not being able to do anything about it is a world with an end. But Jesus is so different because he's not just full of pity, he's joined with power. And enter, enter into this moment. This, this is so beautiful. Here's a man, completely outcast, who just says, help. And Jesus acknowledges his, his fear and his loneliness with just giving the same verb. Will you help? I will. And in this moment, when nobody was allowed around him, Jesus doesn't look at him and say, go jump in that water. Nor does he sort of take his Harry Potter wand and like wave it in the air and like strike him or like throw him some magical beans. He reaches out his hand and he touches him. And it doesn't just say like his lips begin to like uh, be less crackled and his cough begin to slow down. It says, Mark says, immediately, immediately, the disease went away. Like in the same way that the hurricane stopped and the glass went straight to sea. In the same way a door is shut and shut permanently. Immediately, the disease just wiped away and was gone. Just through a touch. Can, can you imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and he breathes life into every single part of this world. And he doesn't just touch it with his finger. He breathes his glory into every square inch of every single thing. Do you know what this means, friends? This means for you in this room right now, if you're going through anything painful, Jesus' compassion and pity in, with you isn't just connection. It promises resurrection. And it guarantees that the hardest thing, the most leper-like thing that you will ever go through in this world, with him and through him, means that one day it will only feel like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. And what a church ought to be, what you ought to be, what I challenge you to be this year, is to be a community that's welcome to every single kind of leper, that's welcome to every race, every creed, every gender, every person, regardless of the degree of inebriation, and you are always welcome, and you are always open, and you point them not just to kindness, but to someone who will offer eternal kindness with resurrection and power, and say, all of this, all of the loneliness, all of the hurt, all of the things that left you isolated from your family Christmas will one day feel like one bad night in a little inconvenient hotel. See, here's what Mark 1 tells us. It tells us that Jesus right now, he is ready. And he stands to save us. And he is full of pity and joined with power. And so all of you who have fears of your own leprosy ever being exposed, you need to doubt no more. And you need to come to him. 
the priest of all priests, who won't just listen to you, but will empathize, hear, and feel, and acknowledge what you're going through, and he will heal it. And the challenge to leave with is there are some people in this room who can make that request, but there are a lot of people in your society and in your community in Long Beach who can't even cry out that request, who can't even say, will you help me? And so before they ask it, you must go to them. There was a man who was leaving his job one night in New York City. And he was walking by Central Park, and he's short and stocky and a little over, uh, bald and overweight. And he hears a little rustling coming from a bush. And he immediately detects um, one, a, a little girl, a girl is making a sound, and she's being attacked. And it sounds like a man who's attacking her. And he has a moment where he thinks, what can I do? I'm short and, and stocky and out of shape. I might even get killed myself. And he's only thinking of himself. But he thinks, but it's a girl in there. You know, I, I can't just leave this and, and walk by. So, you know, without thinking anymore, he just sort of jumps into the bush. And there's a man who's assaulting a, a woman. And the man who's assaulting is so startled and so afraid, he jumps up and just runs off. And so the girl is naturally, she's freaking out, she's terrified, and she's scared. And so the man tries to calm her down, and she thinks, now this man's assaulting her. And she, she starts kicking and says, get off me, get off me, go away, go away. And he says, it's okay, little girl. I'm not here to attack you, I'm here to help you. I'm here to be with you. And he begins to describe, and she just says, Daddy, is that you? See, he had saved his own daughter from assault. And a woman who had no chance, and he risked everything to get in there. You never know who's in the bush. But there are so many who can't say, will you help me? Jesus came to you when you were in the bush and you never asked for it and you didn't want it. And he said, I will. Go and do likewise with him. And be a church that is always open, always inviting and always faithful. Let's pray to him. Lord, that we would imitate your kindness and beauty in this text. how you can look at somebody who no one was legally allowed to be with and touch them and befriend them and hold them. May we follow you into that in Jesus' name. Amen.